0: Our text for today is from our gospel reading. It's from Luke chapter 8. And we're going to be studying this text in detail. So, super helpful if there is a Bible near you or a Bible app on your phone, whatever you might have, to open up God's Word and turn to Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 40. And if you are using our church Bibles, Luke chapter 8, verse 40 is found on page 866. Page 866. As you open up God's Word, we are in the midst of this series, Face to Face with Jesus. And the goal of this series and the goal and the hope and the prayer as we study this text today, our purpose for doing so is simply this, so that you, that we, may know more about Jesus. But even more than that, even more than knowing more about Jesus, it really is simply that we might know Jesus, to know him more, to draw closer to him. That Jesus for us wouldn't be just an idea or or an abstract concept, but more and more a real living vital part of our lives. The best way to do that is to spend time with him in the word, especially in the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. So that's our purpose, our hope, and our prayer, to know Jesus more today. Before we get to Luke chapter 8, starting with verse 40, there's something we have to understand. It's something that the original hearers And readers of Luke's gospel, the first century Jewish people, would have readily understood a lens they would have had to help them understand, to help us understand what Jesus is doing here in this passage. We have to go back to the Old Testament, to Numbers chapter 5, which is part of what's called the ceremonial law of God, the holiness codes, real quick, don't have time to explain it all, but the reason why God has all of this ceremonial law, you know, you can eat this, but you can't eat that, and who's clean, and who's not clean, and all of these rituals of purification, the reason behind all of that is to bind God's people together as a distinct, unique people of God so that the Messiah one day would come from them, that's number one. But number two, it was also a way to begin to teach them almost in a kind of an earth thief physical even we could say primitive or simple way what is clean and unclean what is holy and unholy and to teach them something about how sin separates them from God this section here on what makes a person clean or unclean it is really almost like a parable that is lived out these things that were considered dirty and so they were separated from God and from God's people it was just like a parable to help them to begin to understand how sin separates us from God. This is what it says, Numbers chapter 5. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, command the people of Israel that they put out of the camp everyone who is leprous, so infectious skin diseases of various kinds, or has a discharge, and everyone who is unclean through contact with the dead. You shall put out both male and female, putting them outside the camp that they may not defile their camp in the midst of which I dwell. So again, God is trying to teach his people what is clean, unclean, holy, and unholy, how sin separates us, and they act this out in a very physical way if they were having some kind of infectious skin disease, a discharge of some kind, or had touched a dead body, a corpse, they were symbolically to be removed from the camp, from the presence of God in the tabernacle and later on the temple, put outside the camp, outside the city, and usually it would be for a period of about seven days and go through a ritual purification and then they would return to God's people. That's important for us to understand some of the nuances of what Jesus is doing here now as we turn to Luke chapter 8 starting with verse 40 now when Jesus returned the crowd welcomed him for they were all waiting for him and there came a man named Jairus who was a ruler of the synagogue and falling at Jesus' feet he implored him to come to his house. Now, the situation is this. Jesus has been in the region of Galilee. He has begun his public ministry. He has been preaching and teaching and performing miracles and healing. And the Bible tells us, Luke records for us, that huge crowds have been following. You have to picture thousands of people swarming around Jesus and following him. Jesus, they follow him all the way to the Sea of Galilee. Jesus gets in a boat. He goes all the way across to the other side of the sea. He is in a town there for a day or two performing many wonderful miracles, he comes back across the Sea of Galilee, and there the crowd is still there waiting for him. It's kind of like your dog, when you leave the house, he's waiting at the door, and you leave all day, and then you come home and the dog is still there waiting for you. That's what this crowd is like. The text says that they were all waiting for him when he returned. And there's one man in particular who's waiting for Jesus and he's desperate to see him his name is Jairus we don't know much about Jairus but what we do know about him is very significant we know it says that Jairus was quote a ruler of the synagogue that means that Jairus would have been a wealthy man he would have been a highly educated man He would have been a well-respected man in his community, a man of power, a man of influence, a man of control. Jairus, as a ruler of the synagogue, he was one of the religious leaders of the day, connected to the group known as the Pharisees. You've heard of them, the Sadducees, the chief priests, all of those religious rulers of the day of Christ in the time of Christ. And what do we know of those religious rulers, the rulers of the synagogue and Pharisees and so on? We know that that was the group of people that was in opposition to Christ. It was the rulers of the synagogues, it was the chief priests, it was the scribes, the Pharisees, all of these people who were in such opposition, so threatened by Christ, that they were the ones who, working through the Roman government, arranged to have Jesus crucified, executed on the cross. This is the group of people that Jairus is a part of. The group of people that wanted to have nothing to do with this Jesus of Nazareth. And it's this man who is waiting desperately for Christ to return. It says here that he fell at the feet of Jesus and implored him to come to his house, Jairus Do you see he has fallen at the feet of Jesus, this man of power and respect and dignity, the ruler of the synagogue, part of the group that opposes Christ. He has fallen at the feet of Jesus. It says he's imploring him. He is begging him to come to his house. How many times in your life Have you been so desperate, so in need, in such crisis that you fell down at the feet of someone you didn't even know and begged them for help? How many times in your life have you begged someone for help? He is desperate in crisis, and what is the situation It says, he implored him, he begged Jesus to come to his house, verse 42, for he had an only daughter, about 12 years of age, and she was dying. He had a daughter, his only daughter, perhaps his only child, 12 years old, that tender age. She's dying. Those of us here who have children, and of course you don't even have to have children to understand the desperate, terrifying situation Jairus is in. He falls to the feet of Jesus. He's begging him, Jesus, please come to my house with me. Please, Jesus. And Jesus goes with him. But as they go, there's all of a sudden now there's a problem, a barrier. because there is this crowd of people they've been waiting for Jesus to return they have their needs they have miracles they want Jesus to perform for them word spreads they're going to go to Jairus's house and it says at the end of verse 42 that as Jesus went the people pressed around him again you have to see thousands of people pushing and shoving and pressing in. I don't know if you've ever been around a large group of people like at a a, a sporting event or a concert. I've been there in front of the stage with a thousand people around me and all of a sudden everyone starts to move and topple and there's a panic that ensues and you can't do anything about it and it's terrifying. This is the throng of the mass of people that are pushing and shoving around Jesus, pressing in on him and there's poor Jairus have to go but then verse 43 there is another delay another person who is desperate for Jesus it says verse 43 there is a woman who had had a discharge of blood hemorrhage For 12 years. And though she had spent all of her living on physicians, she could not be healed by anyone. 12 years with a chronic illness. There are some of you in the room today or watching at home, and you understand very well what it is like to suffer year after year after year with a debilitating illness with a chronic illness when I was leaving my church my former church in Florida that was 10 years ago and I was saying my goodbyes to people and I was visiting the people we call homebound people they can't easily come to church and I was visiting one of the ladies there and just saying my goodbyes this was a woman who had been battling with who had been struggling with cancer for over 10 years And I'm saying my goodbyes, and I'm, you know, you try to give a few words of comfort, and you just feel so impotent, you know, just what can you do to make her feel better? Ten years with cancer, and she turned, and she looked at me, and she said, Pastor, I am just so tired. tired that's this woman 12 years with this hemorrhage this discharge of blood it's not only of course the the physical illness that she's enduring but remember numbers chapter 5 who was considered clean and unclean and what was intended by God as sort of a physical way of acting out a parable of what sin is and how it separates you from God. By this time, the, the, the thing itself that was symbolic had become con- to be considered sinful. And normally you would be removed outside the city or the camp and how long? Seven days. And you go through the purification rituals. You come back 12 years. This means 12 years away from the temple. 12 years outside of worship. 12 years separated from God. 12 years separated from God's people. An outcast. 12 years. It says she was so desperate she, quote, spent all her living on physicians. The Greek here is she spent and used up all of her property. Anything she had to manufacture or to have an income in her life, it was gone. She was destitute. Consider her a homeless person who was absolutely desperate for the help of Jesus. Physically, spiritually, socially, on every level. It says, verse 44, she came up behind him. And remember, there's a crowd of people pushing and shoving the thousands of people, and she's working her way through that mob and that throng of people, and she's coming up behind Jesus. And it says she touched the fringe of his garment. That's at the very end bottom of the robe in other words she is down on her hands and her knees crawling crawling through this crowd just to reach out and touch just the fringe of the hem of his garment and it says immediately her hemorrhage her discharge of blood ceased We see here something, don't we, of the divine power of Jesus that he didn't have to lay hands on her. She didn't even touch his flesh, merely reaching out and barely touching the bottom of the hem of his garment on her hands and knees. And she is instantly made physically well, but do you see she is instantly made spiritually clean. This is the great exchange. This is a foreshadowing of the cross of Jesus Christ himself in that moment because again, if you're a first century Jewish person and you're reading this and she's reaching out, the unclean for 12 years person is reaching out to touch Jesus. You're going, no, 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 don't touch him because anytime you were around someone or were touched by someone who was considered unclean, that defiled you and made you unclean. But do you see with Jesus the great reversal? that which is pure, which is holy, which is righteous, which is clean. If the unclean comes into contact, she was made and considered and declared clean and righteous and pure. After 12 years, And then verse 45, this is comical. Jesus said, who was it that touched me? There's a thousand people who are touching him. Peter highlights this. He says, Master, the crowd surrounds you and are pressing in on you. Hello? I mean, you're asking who touched you? There's thousands of people all around you. Jesus says, no, someone touched me. He says, I perceive that power has gone out from me. There's, there, we don't have time to get into it, but there's a sense of the costliness of the miracles of Christ. There was, Paul says in Philippians chapter 2 that Christ emptied himself, taking on the form of a servant. Who was it who touched me? I want to know. Of course, he knows. Who was it who touched me? Now, this woman, it says in verse 47, if you're following along, when the woman saw that she was not hidden from Jesus that he knew she came shaking trembling and falling down before him, declared in the presence of all the people why she had touched him. There's an indication here that maybe she has tried to keep this hemorrhaging for twelve years secret. She didn't want anyone to know. This would have been an overwhelming shame to her. And not only that, but now she is breaking all of the social moral codes and the taboos and the holiness and the cleanliness laws of God himself. And she reaches out and she's not supposed to be there in a city or with the people. She's in a crowd of people and she's not only that but she's purposely reaching out and touching Jesus touching the rabbi, touching the Messiah, the son of God she knows she's not supposed to do that that was absolutely forbidden, how can I make a comparison, it's like if you had COVID today and you went out and purposely tried to infect someone with COVID-19 virus except it's a hundred thousand times worse and now Jesus is calling her out And she's shaking and trembling and says she confesses before all the people what she did. And if Jesus wasn't here, you would imagine this crowd would go and start gathering up stones to take her life. How does Jesus respond? It's not in rebuke. It's not in anger. Jesus is marveling at what this woman has gone through, at what she was willing to risk. He's marveling at her faith in verse 48 where Jesus said to her daughter, he calls her daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in shalom, in peace. amazing faith of this woman who was on her hands and knees reaching out to touch Christ. And Jesus is celebrating her, not rebuking her. And he says to her, go in peace. You know, that's what Jesus says to you today. Some of you, you you're not really that concerned about your sin. You don't see your sin. That's a whole other problem we don't have time to talk about today. Some of you, though, are so overwhelmed by a sense of your sinfulness at times and those sins that you keep on repeating and those things that only you know but you know that God knows and to hear the voice of Satan say can you really believe that God can love you and forgive you Jesus is saying to you today go in peace he's saying to you today we're good your faith which is a gift that I've given you has made you well by my grace Go in shalom. Have a spiritual wholeness. You and me, we're okay. We're good. You're forgiven. But then verse 49. That while Jesus was still speaking to this woman... Someone from Jairus' house came and said, Your daughter is dead. Do not trouble the teacher anymore. Why trouble the teacher? And can you see Jairus as he receives the news that his only daughter, perhaps his only child, is dead? Some of you have experienced that in this room. Some of you have experienced the loss of loved ones. Some of you have heard that devastating news and the shock to hear and you know the 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 ice that can run through your veins in that moment and the numbness that can come into your extremities and the coldness of that moment and the shock and the fear and the deep sorrow of that moment what is Jairus he hears that his daughter has died but Jesus knows this verse 50 and he says he answered him do not fear only believe that's a command. Do not fear. Your fear, Gyrus, is not appropriate because I am here. Now look, this whole text and the miracles, it doesn't mean that if you only believe in Jesus strong enough, he'll heal you and, and take care of you and you won't have any problems. That's not the point of this at all. Whether you receive the healing or you do not receive the healing, the point here, Jesus says to you today, do not fear. I'm up to something in your life so much more amazing and more beautiful than you can ever possibly imagine. Do not fear. He's commanding it of you. Only believe. It'd be great to interview Jairus and go, what was going through your mind. What were you feeling as you were hoping against hope and believing against belief? They follow finally through the crowd. They get to Jairus's house. There's a crowd of people who were wailing and weeping at the loss of this little girl 12 years old. And Jesus says do not weep. Another command. You're weeping. Your sorrow is not appropriate. I am here. Do not weep. He says she is only asleep. Now Jesus isn't being silly here he's not playing around his point is that though she truly were dead and he knew she was dead that when he is around death is like taking a nap and the people laugh at him and so he kicks him out of the house and it's only Peter, James and John the mother and the father of the little girl Jairus' house would have been a big house, big courtyard. Peter, James, John, Jesus, the mother and the father, they make their way into the room where the girl was lying. And you know that Jairus, the moment he saw her, he was looking, is her chest rising and falling? It doesn't say it in the text, but I know that he would have gone over to her and put his cheek next to her, her mouth and her nose to feel, and if there was warmth of her breath, to put his ear on her chest. Was her heart beating? And there was no breath, and the heart was not beating. She was dead. jesus comes in and i see him sitting there on the bed and verse 54 one of the most beautiful verses in all of the bible it says jesus taking her by the hand he called saying child arise and her spirit returned and she got up at once wasn't a slow process instantly from death to life Jesus sitting there. Now look, Jesus didn't have to grab her by the hand or speak, he could have snapped his fingers and all would have been taken care of. Why is he holding her hand? Again, a first century Jewish person who knows Numbers chapter five, that anyone who was defiled by a dead body or touches a dead body is considered unclean and has to be removed out of the camp. Jesus is doing that on purpose, you see, because Jesus is taking the defilement on himself. Jesus, where was the hill Golgotha? It was outside of the camp. It was outside of the wall of Jerusalem, and he took her death upon himself as he hung upon the cross, and he took your sin and your brokenness and your disease and death itself on himself. He died so that she might live so that you might live. That's what he's doing here. It's very symbolic, but it's not only symbolic. What is Jesus doing as he sits there and he holds that little 12-year-old girl's hand Jesus is being so kind and tender. Jesus is the one who is the author and creator of all of life. He designed the DNA double helix. Molecule. He designed Mount Evans, all of the rings around Saturn, the entire universe, and he knows every single grain of sand in the entire world, and he holds it all together in his all-powerful hand, and it's that hand which is gently picking up her lifeless hand and holding it in his, because the first thing he wants her to experience when she comes back to life is that he's holding her hand. And to hold someone's hand, that is intimate, isn't it? He's so kind. And then finally, he speaks and says, Child, arise. Mark's gospel has the Aramaic, Talitha kumi, Talitha Kumi is an expression that parents would have commonly used as a way of waking their children in the morning. Talitha Kumi, uh, it's time for breakfast. You know, the bacon is frying. Talitha Kumi, get up, the pancakes are ready. Talitha Kumi, uh, wake up, it's time for school, little one. It's what parents would have said to wake up a little child from sleep. And Jesus is using that same expression here, holding her hand, and he's saying, wake up, little girl. You know, my daughter Amelia is now 10 when I wake her up go down the hallway and her upstairs and I turn on the light in the bathroom that's across the hall from her room because I don't want to turn all her lights on and be that bright but just a little bit of light coming in the room turn off any fans or anything that's going and sit by her bed just as Jesus with this little girl and I kind of rub her back or her little arm and I'll say Amelia it's time to wake up Talitha Kumi it's time to wake up Jesus says to you today, go in peace. You and I, we're good. You are forgiven. Do not live in that fear and shame anymore. You are loved by me. Go in peace. He says that to you today. He says to you, do not fear. Whether you get the healing, or you don't get the healing. You get the raise, or you don't get the raise. You, you, whatever your situation in life, do not fear. I am working through it all. Something more amazing you can possibly imagine. And on the day when you breathe your final earthly breath, the moment of your death, as you close your eyes for that life, last time and your heart stops beating in that moment instantly as you open up your eyes you will hear Jesus voice saying to you it's time to wake up it's time to wake up as he holds you in his hand and draws you near And you will be with him face to face forevermore. To Christ alone be all the glory. Amen.